Hi, it's Pete here, and welcome to EdTech Innovators. What is culturally responsive teaching in the context of technology? Step forward, Glendalee's Martinez Almonte. A highly experienced educator, Glendalee's is the National Director of Curriculum Associates, a technophile, and an equity warrior. Okay, welcome, Glendalee's Martinez. Uh, so good to meet you. And um, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Pete. I'm really excited to speak with you today. Yeah, me too. Actually, um, I'm. It's uh, dreadful weather out here in the UK, and it's it's dark at the moment, and we've had torrential rain all day. So anything that gets me out of that is uh, has to be a good thing. Uh, how are things with you? Well, I. I feel like I'm in the UK then because we're having the exact same weather in Houston, Texas. It's cold and it's raining and it's dark. <laughs> so... Wow. That's, 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 not, that's not very Texan, is it? It's not at all. <laughs> oh, dear. Right. We need to do something about this. Okay. So uh, let's, um, I suppose, warm the listeners with uh, a, a useful conversation. So what is your interest in technology? Why, why, why technology in education? Uh, how can it change the world and how can it not change the world? Well, I, I think it's really interesting, especially for me, because I'm, I'm not a digital native. I was introduced to the Internet in ninth grade. So that was in 19. I'm aging myself here, but in 1995, in the fall of 1995, we got web crawler at my school and we started engaging with the internet and at the time google didn't exist um there wasn't much on the internet i think we were connecting through netscape and our teachers just thought hey you could use this tool as as a digital library of sorts right to just search for your uh for your resources and things like that uh and we we were we we never thought that the internet was going to become what it's become at that time. Um, but as time has evolved, and even when I was teaching, I saw how much technology impacted what our students were learning, what our students were being exposed to. And then when education technology became a huge deal, right? I, I think I left the classroom right around the time when education technology started to take a turn for being the major tool to use in a school um, with students. So. I've seen some great things come out of tools like ours, like iReady, where we're able to support kids and, and, and get them back on grade level, but also to enrich uh, what they're doing in school and to help them maintain um, at grade level. And not just that, but I think it's also very interesting. I think I come from like the generation of writing letters to pen pals in other places. So now kids can write emails or they can get on FaceTime. I just think that technology has definitely opened the door for a lot of really wonderful things in education for students. Mm, interesting. So let, let's go way, way back, if we may, yes. to, to a time that we both remember, I'm afraid. So <laughs> so let's um, get nostalgic for a while and think about the, uh, the white noise of connecting to the internet and how slow that was. And as you said, this feeling that there was a digital library somewhere, that it was, it was we didn't really know what to do with it, but we knew it was going to be important. And I suppose um, the, this begs the question, in the mid-90s, when the internet became a thing, should we say, for want of a better uh, term, um, we knew that it would be important for education, but was it really making a difference at that stage? 
at that time, no, it wasn't for at the time. I mean, my exposure to technology up until that point was like typewriters. And then uh, we took a keyboarding class, which I'm very thankful for because I can type now due to my seventh grade teacher giving us um, keyboarding. But we, we didn't have access to anything beyond that, except for maybe like our digital card catalog in the library. And I don't think that it was a very useful tool at the time. I mean, first of all, it was dial up, right? Um, so that was, <laughs> that was the first thing. And then when I think it was DSL came out, my, my school, I went to boarding school in Pennsylvania, I went to Milton Hershey School. My school had DSL, but even then web crawler was literally crawling, you know, that's how slow it was. And we were, there wasn't much on there. I think we were tapping into like the, I forgot what, what central library in Washington, DC, but we were tapping into, that was the only thing that was on the internet at the time. Mm. So there wasn't much in terms of being able to do research. Mm. But um, yeah, I mean, I think, this is the issue that, in a way, felt like going to a library, going into a library, and approaching a bookcase. And when you reach that bookcase, that bookcase would say, "Here's another bookcase over there," and then it would say, "There's another bookcase, and even bigger yes. bookcase." You can have a look at that if you want. And it was just lists saying, "Here's another list," and that would lead you to another another list of things. Um, so, weirdly enough, um, to play devil's advocate, we could argue that little has changed in terms of. Um, having access to actually mean actually meaningful information obviously i'm play, playing devil's advocate now but what, what would you what would you say in, in response I, to that i still think that teachers are critical in that because they are the ones that can teach students how to use the internet appropriately and purposefully to be able to access information like for example if i want to go online to find reliable information, I'm going to go into JSTOR, for example, and I don't know if that's how it's pronounced, J-S-T-O-R, but I'll go into JSTOR and I'll look up articles because they house so many high quality um, articles that are that are well-researched, right? So if I'm doing something for research, for example, um, when I'm doing keynotes for work, that's my primary go-to online. Um, I also feel like teachers are imperative here because they can inform students that, hey, there is not just one place to go for information. You want to check your sources. You want to check your sources against other sources. So finding mm. that information, going, I mean, when I was teaching, it was, okay, when we get on the internet and we're looking for sources, if you're, if you're writing a research paper, you've got to make sure that you're using factual information, check it against other things. Um, I had to teach my students how to use a card catalog in the library and for them to look up books, they had to be taught that, but then to say, okay, if we go online, these are the type of sources that you have to find. So I do mm. feel like if we don't teach folks how to use the internet with geolocating and, and your phone's constantly looking at what's, or tracking what you're doing on the, on, um, on the internet, it's really hard to get, uh, a variety of, of, of quality of information because, you know, you're going to get what you search, essentially. 
Yeah, and I suppose this is another reason why it's it's deliciously early days in terms of uh, where we are uh, with um, the internet and uh, education. Because um, I mean, you could argue, couldn't you, that if the job of a, te a teacher is no longer to know everything and to be the sort of sage on the stage, as it were, our job is to help pupils navigate infinite knowledge. Um, well, the pupils don't see it that way, do they? They they don't defer to educators as being the people who understand the internet. They think they know it all which is very different from before the internet days. Well, I think, you know, I think it depends on what we're, what we're doing on the internet, right? Like I could never code anything. I'm not a, I'm not a coder. Like my kids were able to code things. They were able to do some really funky things with technology that I wasn't able to do um, when I was teaching. But, but what I could do was to educate. I mean, that was the job. And when it comes to educators, um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, you do kind of have to know um, a certain level of a variety of things to be able to to share that with students because they're looking to you for that information. So we want to make sure that we're giving them tools that are going to help them in the future, because what happens is when those kids graduate from high school, they're going to go into college or university, as you guys say, and they go into university and they're going to have to apply those skills that they were taught in K through 12 to what they're doing in university because no one's going to be there holding their hands. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, personal question. Can you code? I can probably code like two things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, full disclosure, I have been able to code very small things on occasions, but it makes me really miserable. <laughs> well, yes. I agree with you there. I'm going to leave that to the engineers and I am going to um, stick to the reading side of the things and editing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. We have uh, different skills. I think that if, if I had to code all day long, I'd, be, I'd go blind and I'd be very, very uh, depressed, I think. So, um, but yeah, as you say, leave it to the people who, who are happy doing that kind of thing. Yes. I mean, yeah. it is a fascinating, it's a fascinating skill to have because and I talk about this a lot when I do my keynotes, right? I'll say, you know, when we talk about reading instruction and, and kids learning the code of English, they have to learn those core letters and those and the and then how the letters combine to make sounds and then how those sounds come together to make words. And I'll say, you know, it's a lot like coding on a computer. If you have that skill set, that is fabulous, especially because you're putting in a bunch of symbols and numbers and letters and then out comes a picture on Instagram, right? So I just yeah. think that that's really impressive that people are able to do that. I just don't have that skill set, so I leave it to the people who know how to do it. But it's interesting that you you, you framed it in the, the context of literacy, and I, I love that phrase, multiple literacies, and um, you know, in, in the context of how kids should be learning. Well, I, I I look at literacy through the lens of there is no one particular literacy, right? There's assessment mm. literacy, there's digital literacy, there's obviously. The literacy that we're all familiar with, which is opening up a book and reading letters on a page or opening up a Kindle or what have you and reading on a screen. But, you know, there are multiple literacies. There's visuals. There's um, people who write music. To me, that's musical literacy. I'm not a musician. Um, I don't have that skill, but someone does. So I look at literacy through that lens for sure. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so we've we've so we've gone right back to the nineties. We've we've put on yes. some snow wash and some over, oversized clothes <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, and now we're going up to the we've sort of fast forwarded to the present day, haven't we? In our little yes. uh, time time traveling uh, machines. So um, 
Well, uh, where are you now? So let's talk about the keynotes that you do. Let's talk about your, mm-hmm. your work in education, especially using uh, technology. So I, I work for an education technology. So a lot of our product is focused on reading and math. I mean, that's where we, we focus our time. That's where we focus our product so that we can help develop students' reading and math skills. And my keynotes lend themselves to what we do, not just at the company, but what teachers do in the classroom on a daily basis. And most recently, my keynote has been about, funny enough, um, about the different literacies and also the way that um, we think about language and how children engage with language and how we can um, look at students' language from an asset-based perspective. Because uh, I always ask the question, and this will make you laugh because you're in the UK and I'm in the United States, but uh, I always ask the question, what is standard English, right? And, mm. and, and everybody looks at me like, that's a trick question. And of yeah. course it's a trick question because depending on where you live, there is no standard English unless you're taking English straight from England and it was like your original English, which by the way, you all don't speak anymore, right? So, um, yeah. so we talk about how non-standard forms of English are also have different structures and that we have to validate that in students in order for me to transfer us to transfer those skills into what we want them to learn, which is a standard form of English. And the way we do that, the way we use technology to do that, and the way that we facilitate the usage of technology to do that is where our conversations happen. Like, for example, when we're evaluating students on oral reading fluency in our system, um, we definitely give teachers some tools to think about what is an error when it comes to speech, um, what is an error when it comes to reading and how those two may not always correlate. So that's mm. the kind of stuff that I talk about. <laughs> okay. So can we, well, before we lift up the bonnet, lift up the hood yes. and have a look inside, um, another personal question. <laughs> what <are> you, <laughs> you do lots of keynotes. Um, what are your views on PowerPoint? So I use PowerPoint, but I feel, okay, so I love a really clean slide. And by clean, I mean, I want it to be pretty, and I want you to be looking at something that's going to draw your eye to it. But I, I'm i not a big put a lot of words on a PowerPoint slide person. Never have yeah. been. So I Good. try to keep them as clean and as beautiful as possible. That's my view on PowerPoint. <sighs> that feels good. Thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> you are most welcome. <laughs> I mean, so... if you're speaking, I, look, if you're speaking to people in front of them and you're, you're doing a PowerPoint, um, you definitely, I feel, you don't want people reading what's up there. You want them listening to what you're saying, right? So yeah, definitely, and maybe framed by by visuals, maybe framed by um, yes. a, a word or two, a phrase or something. But uh, yes. they want your, yeah, they want your inspiration, not a load of uh, words. I mean, I think that all of us, all, <laughs> all of our views on PowerPoints are um, coming at it from the point of view of a victim. We've been, we've been. <laughs> yes. Victims of boring PowerPoints over the years, and it feels it feels bad, and we don't want to inflict that on other people. But I, but I digress. Let's so let's uh, look under the under the bonnet, look under the hood of the um, of, of what you do. So let's talk about the uh, well, either the literacy or the maths. But so whatever whatever you would like to talk about then, of, of how the technology actually helps. Um, uh, technology products um, help uh, develop these skills. Well, for for starters, I think when you have children who come into a classroom from different economic backgrounds, from different 
um, backgrounds in the home. Some come from different linguistic backgrounds. We definitely have to, and I hate using this term, but I'm going to use it. We have to level set the, the, the way that we're going to teach in the classroom. And a lot of the times um, it's really difficult when you're teaching 20, 30 students in a classroom, trying to figure out what reading levels they're on, what they know, what they don't know, um, how we can apply what we're teaching in the classroom in the most constructive and also in the most engaging way for students. So, you know, at, at iReady, we, we give students, we, we provide teachers with a tool where students are assessed by a diagnostic. And there's been a lot of talk about whether or not this is a good thing. And I would say that as a classroom teacher, I would have loved to have had something like iReady. Um, I would have loved to have iReady in the classroom because I would have known at the beginning of the year. So I was the teacher. I just want to pause right here and say I was the teacher first day of school. I gave my students a, a five paragraph essay to tell me about their summer. And it uh. wasn't. Yeah. It, well, the, it, it was for several reasons. But the main reason was because I wanted to know what my students' writing skills were, what their understanding of reading was, because if a student is a good writer, they're typically a good reader and vice yeah. versa. So I would give that essay, I would read the essay, and that would give me some idea of how well my students were grasping um, that grade level of, of English, right? So Yeah, and it's very useful, of course. Yes, of course it is, because then you know where you can start and what you have to fill in in the background, right? So Maybe my students have some grammatical um, struggles, so I have to teach them many lessons on grammar, or they're not sure what a thesis is, or they're not sure how to write a paragraph. You just don't know until you get your kids to, to put a pencil to paper. So with iReady, they take a diagnostic, and you're able to assess whether or not they know those particular skills at that particular level, and you're able to see whether or not they know their prerequisite skills. So if yeah. I had that, then I would take that, in that first couple, I would say maybe two to three weeks, I would have an I would have information that tells me, can my students decode? Because here's another thing. When our students are reading below grade level, sometimes it's because they don't know the foundational skills of English, which is your, you know, your phonics and your phonological awareness. They don't know what a sound, what sound is applied to what letter, and they don't know what letter goes with what letter in order to spell. So that's a huge deal when you're talking about, say, middle school students who are who are below grade level. But the other thing is I have that technology and it tells me this kid is talented. This kid really knows um, how to read. This kid is, is way above grade level. So it gives you some really imperative information for you to set up how, what, what next steps you take in the classroom in terms of instruction and then how engaging you make that instruction. Because here's the thing, especially after COVID, I would say that what I, I, I like to call it an engagement crisis in schools right now. Kids left school, they were on the internet, they were exposed to different things, and now they're back in school and teachers are, are doing the best that they can. But at the same time, you know, we've, the kids want to be engaged in ways that I think that, that is, is forcing a lot of educators to be really innovative, is forcing a lot of school districts to be innovative. Um, in order to get those kids back on grade level and then, you know, graduating on time. So it's, it's been a really interesting ride um, watching how all of this is, is unfolding. 
Interesting. So we'll go back to iReady in, in a moment, but um, what, what, what ideas are you uh, talking about in terms of uh, developing that, that kind of engagement? And uh, obviously we're thinking about the, 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 the gaps left by COVID, of course, and how to get kids more engaged. Uh, well, but what have you liked so far? Well, one of the things I'll say is um, I'm an avid reader. I love reading. I love books. Um, and I love reading and I love books because I love that I fell in love with some books when I was in high school. I mean, I didn't really fall in love with any books until I got to like 12th grade. But one of my favorite authors um, who's passed in recent years, Toni Morrison. And when wow. I read Song of Solomon my senior year, Song of Solomon opened up my my whole world because I was like, wow, you can do this with a book, right? So I remember yeah. watching her um, speaking at, I think it was like the... It was like some reading panel that she was on and it was like the national reading panel or something like that. This was years ago. This had to be like 15, 20 years ago. I saw her speaking and she, someone asked her, well, how can you, how can you get kids back on grade level? What, what do you recommend we do to engage our lowest students? And she said, give them the good stuff first. And mm -hmm. I think that we, um, as a, as a world, I would say we've gotten away from giving kids the good stuff, giving kids highly engaging texts because we've been focused on developing student skills. Um, and I, I feel like you can do both. You can, you can definitely develop student skills and still give them really high quality, highly engaging reading material that's going to make them think and use their imaginations. I mean, that's the purpose of reading. It's to open up your world to different places and different things and even different times I like science fiction different different um realities when you're reading a book uh and yeah. I think that we don't we I think we lost our way when it comes to reading that way because we were so focused on getting kids so skillful we forgot to make it fun Mm. So it's about re-engaging them with, with the love of reading. Um, love Toni Morrison, by the way. I've, uh, I've, I've loved Toni Morrison for a long time because of yes. her writing, but I've been down several rabbit holes recently looking at her videos on YouTube. I mean, there's a, a, a um, an undergraduate course waiting to be written purely based on her videos on, on YouTube. They're talking about you know, everything that you would want to be talking about in yes. terms of her literature and the issues associated with it. But um, I mean, I think this, I'm sure this debate is uh, as, uh, I suppose, divided as it is in the UK, but who decides what is the good stuff? Well, that's the problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to say something controversial. So. Do it. We, we can say what we want on this podcast. <laughs> yes. So I think the problem is that we are so, and by we, I mean like the the world of, of, of literature, right? The, the, yeah. the people who make these decisions, whoever these people are are so married to the canons, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. That they, it's almost like there is no space for anything else, for anything new, for, because it, there's some rule that says like these canons, if you read, I, I've seen so many lists, read these 100 books before you go to college or whatever the lists say. Um, and I think about some of the books that I even had to teach and I'm just like, that was no fun. And now the kids, you know, they're reading online. They're accessing a lot of their of their reading. I can't read online. It's just not something I'm comfortable with, but I totally get it, right? This, these are digital natives who can do that. And don't you want to just be able to engage a kid and say, 
oh yes, read this book that you're going to love. Um, and it's still at grade level. It's still going to, it's going to, it's going to check off all the boxes of Lexile levels and, um, and whatever grade level it, it, it it's aligned to. And, and we're going to be able to get some, uh, highly complex text in there. It's just newer, richer, things that are more real to students, things that students can connect to. Because I had a really hard time teaching uh, the Scarlet Letter when I was teaching in high school. When I was teaching high school, my kids were like, why do we want to read about adultery? And I was like, that's yeah. a great question. I'm going to try to explain this to you. And I had no good answer. <laughs> it was just mm. like, you yeah. have to, right? So um, I think that we have to all be open to the idea of, the children needing something that speaks more to who they are in their generation. Yeah, yeah, easy said than done, of course, to make a, a slightly trite statement. But uh, yes. yeah, uh, I mean, I think we, we show a lot of the same passions here, don't we? And one of them is the, I suppose, the the, the need to develop these traditional lit literacies aided by technology. You know, this age-old question: How can technology actually, you know, facilitate and uh, accelerate um, mm -hmm. an, an engagement with and competence with these traditional literacies? Um, so, do you ask those questions uh, a lot? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, think about. Well, again, I'm aging myself, but when I would read a book, I would read with my dictionary next to me. So yeah. here I am. I, I come across a word I don't know. I have to stop reading the text. I've got to go look it up in the dictionary. And then that, you know, took me away. So then I have to go back into the text. And now I'm going to start the paragraph over again, right? Now, mm. if I'm reading a book online and I don't understand the word, I can just highlight the word. And then all of a sudden, there's the definition. So that's an example of how much technology could facilitate something without disrupting the process that I'm going through as I'm reading. Um being able to have accessibility. So for students who need larger print, for students who need to hear the, um, the, the, the story being read to them, for students who are developing English, for students who, um, who need it to, to, to hear it, but it needs to go slower. Like there are so many different accessibility tools that can be added to, um, to books for students who are dyslexic, right? For mm. us to be able to engage students who wouldn't normally be or readily be engaged into in a text if they just had a print book, right? So that's one of those things that you're just like, well, if we put something in front of the student, we want them to be able to access it. And we want to design it in a way where the majority of our students are able to access it, regardless of what their learning capabilities are. Yeah, and just to go back to the nostalgic days of, of reading and be loving reading. Um, I mean, I'll refer to, I don't know if you're familiar with the theory of inactivism. We're going, we're going deep now. Um, are you familiar with that at all? No, please explain. Uh, maybe don't I worry. Don't, don't, it's, it, you probably are. But uh, so I've been reading and writing about that a bit recently. And it's the idea that whatever tools we use, um, they're, I suppose they exist alongside um, the you know the body of the person who's using them, mm -hmm. you know the fingers that are using them, and so on, the thumbs that they're using them, right. but also the cu the culture that's around them and the environment. So everything exists sort of in harmony with each other. So if we go back to you know my favourite 
part of my life which was reading for my English degree and I'd have a, a book in one hand a pen in the other I'd have the yes. dictionary as you did you know next to me and a thesaurus very close to me as well and they were all working in harmony and, and obviously the, the the culture was part of which is very sort of um, you know very kind of uh, you know, liberal culture where you, you would spend a lot of, you wouldn't spend much time going to lectures you spend a lot of time sort of uh, being free and uh, to explore ideas they were all working together and sometimes I fear that people think that technology is going to happen magically, is going to actually make a magical difference, that there's no sort of connection between you know, the people who are using it and the, their, their, their bodies, their fingers, their thumbs, and, and the culture that's around them and uh, the, the culture of the school, for example. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, it, the, the technology is only as good as the people that are using it, right? Like, it's a, it's a tool. It's not, it's not the, the end of... Okay, great. We put it's. I'll give you a perfect example. It, it and and I've heard people say this all the time. But if you put computers in front of the students, and you say, "Now use your computers to learn," and the teaching has not shifted, um, what people say is it's like having a really cool pencil, where you're not really yeah. you're not really using the tool to its to its fullest capability. Uh, and I, I, I still feel like you, you have to know how you're going to use the tool. You can't just, I mean, technology is great, but you have to know how you're going to use it. And you have to be smart about how you're going to use it so that um, students and teachers are maximizing the technology in order to, at the end of the day, enhance their learning. Otherwise, you're just, again, you, you have a very expensive pencil is, is what people say. Yeah, and I don't know if it's the same in, in the US, but certainly in the UK, there isn't enough uh, training uh, for staff on how to actually, you know, use technology to to help learning, to accelerate learning. Um, there's there's lots of um, training on systems and how to use these systems right. to, to for compliance and things like that, and, and data management, but not on how to use technology to help people learn. If that makes sense, is it, is it, it similar it for does. you? Yeah, um, I think that because we're surrounded by digital products and, and, and technology, I think there's a lot of assumptions made around, well, everyone should know how to use an iPad now, or everyone should know how to use a Chromebook now. I mean, there's just an assumption that you would know how to do that. But in our industry, what we say is your, you know, your product is only as good as your implementation. So if yeah. you're, if you, if you put technology into a, into a, a school, for example, and you're, you don't get trained on it and then, you know, your implementation is only going to be as good as that training. So if there was no training, then you're not going to be able to use that technology to its fullest potential in the classroom. And again, the purpose is to get students to maximize their learning. Yeah, and, and I, I think, I mean, think about reading, for example. So mm. when you see people on iPads, for example, highlighting text and um, saving things, and that that's mm -hmm. really, seems quite revolutionary, doesn't it? But they're reading in exactly the same way as they were reading with a traditional book. So there's no um, change in how they're reading, if that makes sense. You know, it makes total sense. So I, I remember um, years ago, I was taking a class and I had, and this is not an ad for the Microsoft Surface, but I want to say, I had, um, I had. We are not sponsored by Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> I had a Surface. It was really heavy for those of you who are listening who work at Microsoft. Um, it was very heavy, but one of the things that I loved about that particular um, device was that it had. Um, I forgot the name of the app that comes with it, but I could copy and paste my book or pages from my book into my Notepad. 
And then I was able to write, write on my book and write my notes like I would have on my book. Um, and then I could, I, you know, I could add things. So I would look stuff up and I would add it. So it was like a, this is going to sound so ridiculous, but it was like having like a storyboard on my notepad of what I was doing in class. It was like, um, active notes. So I'm Mm. in there doing all this stuff. And I just thought that that was so useful for me as a note taker, because I had a pen and it was for me when I'm listening, even when I'm in class, I, I like writing stuff down. So when I'm, when I'm doing research, I write in a notebook and then I type it into my computer because that's the way that I process. So that took that, that component away from me. And it helped me to be able to organize my thoughts on my device and then have them all in the same place and then be able to jump into my text that I was working from um, mm. and any kind of resources that I was, that I was adding to it in, right inside that particular app. So I was really happy with that particular device because I haven't had an experience like that with any other since. Mm. So, well, let's 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 go forward into the future then. Talking of things that are, that are useful, sort of now and recently. So we've we've gone right back to to Hammer Time to the nineties and we've been yeah. to the to the recent years with uh, how things are, are developing. But uh, what are your hopes for the near future with what technology can do for um, for education? Well, one, I hope that. We're able to, oh, hold on one second. My son just walked into my room. I'm sorry. Hey. It's my two-year-old. Hi. (laughs) Sorry. Does does he want to talk? Oh, he won't talk, but he is. He stole a penny from my parents and opened my door. So here's. (laughs) Sorry about that. Oh, don't worry. What's his name? His name is Howard. He went back to he went back to his room now. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, bye, bye, Howard. Yes. Oh well. So, um, yeah. to answer your question, oh, he found another coin, and he's say hi, Howard. <laughs> hi, Howard. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, when it comes to technology, come on, Howard, um, and how we can be used in the future for kids. Well, I, I look at him. I look at him. Hold on one second. It's okay. Yes. So the rest of this uh, episode will be framed through how Howard is going to use technology in the future. Yes, how Howard is going to use technology in the future. And he's screaming now. So, because he might die to pick him out. But it's, it's all I, good. He, I mean, I, it, um, it's fascinating because I watch him, my two year old, on, he'll steal my phone and how quickly he was able to figure out how to use it. I don't think technology is something that it's hard for me to understand the way that he might look at technology versus how I look at technology because I was not a digital native like he is. And so I think about like how he would use it in his future. And for me, it's like, I I think that it's, there are endless possibilities for starters. I think that he might learn how to code when he's like eight in school. I think that might be part of what their curriculum would be. And for them to be able to create their own sort of like approaches to learning that way or teachers are going to teach them how to put things into that perspective because the jobs that they're going to be exposed to are going to be very different. I mean, jobs that we don't even know have been created yet would be available to them where we I don't think that those were things that we even thought about when I was in in school, not even in college. 
Yeah, that's right. And we, we, you know, we used to talk about Raspberry Pis quite a lot. You know, the, the accessible ways for children to to, to code or to or to develop an interest in coding. Um, yeah. So they'll be part of the programming process then, which is which is interesting, isn't it? Because for quite a long time, young people have been sort of on the receiving end of uh, the internet, should we call it, uh, rather than active producers of um, not just content but what goes under the bonnet too. Right. No, I mean and. And, and I, you know, I, right now, like we, so our technology is adaptive, right? But I think it's also, we've, we've done things with technology, like when it comes to the students reading paragraphs, we've put these Google, um, I forgot what they call, they're called, but they're the glasses, the Google glasses that they put on the students to see what, what students do as they're reading for us to be able to enhance whatever technology we do put in front of students to make it more engaging for them. But I just Mm. feel like their exposure or their engagement with technology is going to be something that we probably haven't even thought about doing yet. Something like, oh, well, you know, maybe they might be taking hybrid classes where maybe my son might be in school with someone over there in the UK or vice versa. Uh, yeah. And that might be an option for him where we see that some in some places right now, but we don't really see that uh, widespread across the country at all here. And I just think that there are so many opportunities for them to be able to uh, change the look of education and the feel of education from what we're doing now. Um, and I think it's a good thing for kids because, you know, I, I talk about this a lot. We've been doing the same thing for so long and we, we have millions of kids who are being left behind. And I think that it's time that we start to look at how we can structure education in a way that's going to be beneficial for all students. And I think technology is going to play a big part in that. Absolutely. And it reminds me of a, a conversation I had last week on, on the podcast. Um, that's the, you know, Howard's classroom uh, in a few years' time. Surely, surely that won't look like our classrooms. It yes. won't be in sort of rows and so on. And uh, with, with a teacher at, at the front and so on, there'd be something a little bit more collaborative, a bit more like these jobs that uh, we don't know exist yet. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, if you look at the, this is this is a, a silly comparison, but if you look at the evolution of libraries to media centers, right? We used to go into the library, it'd be a stack of books and and that was it. And now the library is the place where you go and you engage with technology or you go and you you create, you you do more than just check out a book at a library at this point. Um, Mm. And that evolution had to happen because of what technology did or how the internet changed how we use libraries so so they're called media centers now because they're you know librarians are are doing much more than what they were doing in the past yeah and and they've been able to coexist harmoniously haven't they which is interesting because very often there's a danger of sort of pushing pushing certain things aside when when new new technologies develop so uh, libraries are a really good example yeah oh this has been so interesting Thank you so much, Vandalise <laughs> and Howard. You're welcome. I'm sorry yeah. about Howard jumping. Don't apologise for Howard. We're, we're, we're trying to shape his future and everybody else is, <laughs> you know. So uh, this, this is wonderful. So thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated it. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed the cameo from young Howard. That's it for this time. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you again next time at Tech Innovators.